All right. Good morning. Uh, thank God once again. Why sound strange? Uh, for this opportunity, we can gather to worship Him. Now, our theme this year is on to outreach, which is the third pillar of our church vision. And outreach is a result of understanding God's love for us. And so we explore the Old Testament stories um, from creation to Christ, titled The Greatest Love Story Ever Told. Soon her father left. She was shunted off to live with her aunt, who then died of AIDS. At 10 years old, she finally moved to the US to be reunited with her mother. And she had great hopes for her new life in the States, leaving behind all the pain and brokenness. She even imagined her parents getting back together. But at this time, her mother had remarried and had just given birth to a baby. Her dad lived with another woman in another state. And so, Farah's life in the U.S. turned out to be a journey of tears. In school, a security guard had his eye on her. He would walk her home every day. To Farah, he was her knight in shiny armour. But in reality, he was a 36-year-old sexual predator who was bent on having sexual relationships with a 12-year-old girl. Her mother discovered it. They had a big argument and she was shipped off to live with her father. Now, in her pain and brokenness, she shared with her father all the sexual abuse she has experienced in the past, and it triggered a new cycle of abuse, this time at the hands of her own father. She lost her will to live. And you think if, like a young woman like Farah, with the brokenness she has experienced in the past, what hope does she have for her future. Jacob Koshi was born in Singapore and he has only one desire in life, one ambition, and that is to be successful. So he ended up uh, running a gambling den, selling drugs, and he became the head of an international smuggling ring. In the 80s, he was arrested and thrown in prison. It was beyond his endurance because all his ambition, his drive, his desire were all locked away with him in one tiny cell. For somebody like Koshi, who have committed crimes and hurt so many people, with a past like that, what hope can he have with regards to his future? In the 90s, Beckett Cook was a successful uh, gay fashion designer in Hollywood. And so he has a lot of friends, uh, famous actors and actresses. He would travel all around the world to nice places with um, those fashion magazines because he designed the photo-taking sets for them. One day, while having a, in a party in Paris, he was suddenly overwhelmed by a sense of emptiness. He thought, you know, I already have everything I want in life. Success, money, fame. I know all these famous people, but why do I feel this sense of emptiness? He said, I didn't think of turning to God because I was a gay man and I knew that option was off the table. For someone like Cook, successful, able to achieve whatever he wants, but yet feel this sense of emptiness, what hope does he have when he looks at his future? And that is what I would like us to consider today. Maybe in our past, 
There's something that holds us in bondage. Some brokenness, something we did wrongly, uh, disappointed others, disappointed ourselves, hurt other people. Some bondage that, that, that holds us back from enjoying the freedom in Christ. What hope do we have? Or maybe we try different ways, you know, to find meaning and purpose, to justify our existence through our children, our family, our successes. But yet we feel like we are constantly trying, never good enough. What hope do we have? That is what I would like us to consider as we look at Genesis 38, the story of Judah and Tamar. You know, when we look at Old Testament stories, there are three horizons or contexts we have to consider. First, the immediate context. What is this story all about? Second, the further context. Why did they record this story? Why is it in the Bible in this place? You know, to the Israelites at the time, what did it mean? Thirdly, is the meta context or the meta horizon. We are New Covenant uh, followers, we are not Jews. So when we look at those Old Testament stories through the lenses of the cross, what does it mean? And so from these three horizons, we understand that the story of Judah and Tamar is about the redemption of Tamar, the redemption of Judah, and the redemption of all mankind. You know, in the Bible, especially Genesis, it's about the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and who's the fourth person? Joseph, right? And the Joseph story is the longest. But in the midst of Joseph's story, when he suffered and he was still righteous, suddenly there's one chapter about Judah and Tamar. Just one. Why? Have you ever asked that question? What, why is there such a strange story, especially you know, about the father-in-law and the daughter-in-law sleeping together? Why is this in the Bible? So let us jump right in into the story. The story of Judah and Tamar is about being declared righteous. When you read the Bible, especially the stories, how do you know what is the main point? Not too difficult. You look whether is there a summary statement, is there a concluding statement, or a statement made by the character. You know, they exclaim something, Alama! You know, that's the, that's the key point. So, this whole story is about being declared righteous. Firstly, about the redemption of Tamar. Now, Judah took a wife for his Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform your duty as your brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Judah was referring to the Leveret law in the Bible. Leveret or Lever, E-L-E-V-I-R. It's a Latin word for brother-in-law. Basically, if you're married and your husband dies and you have no children, you know, your husband's brothers would marry you, one of them. And the firstborn will belong to the original brother. Why is there such a law in the Bible? Well, because God promised to Abraham what? Three things, land, seed, blessing, okay? The land is important. To be part of this covenant, they had to have been part of the land. And so it is to pass down from generation to generation. But how did Onan, the second son, Judah had three sons, the second responded. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord took his life also. Why didn't Onan want to fulfill that law? You see, Judah has three sons, right? When he dies, his property is divided into how many parts? Three sons, four parts, right? The first two parts goes to the older son, double portion. So Onan, being the second son, will get 25%. One quarter. 
Now, with his brother out of the way, no, he left two sons. So Judah's property will be divided into three and Onan being the eldest now would inherit double, which means two-thirds instead of a quarter. Now, if you were him, would you want to have your brother have a son? Of course not. But Onan wasn't seeking after what God desired. He was seeking after his own flesh. So the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. For some reason, Judah blamed his daughter-in-law. Maybe he was superstitious. Maybe he thought she was jinxed. He just wanted her out. He says his excuse was, the younger son Shelah was too young. So wait until he hits puberty. Okay, so Tamar must be relatively young too. Okay, wait until he hits puberty, five to ten years, and she, was st- she still is able to give birth. But, and he sent her away to her father's house. But you know at that time, being a widow is a terrible position to be in because you cannot just go out and find a job, you know. You cannot go and work at McDonald's or do some part-time work. If you are a widow and your parents cannot support you, the only way of making a living is either you beg or you sell your body. And so, when Judah didn't step up to the plate, he was condemning Tamar to a life of poverty. But he did that. He didn't think how she would respond, what situation she would be in. Now, after some time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. When the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers in Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. It was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. She realized that Judah didn't have any intentions for her to marry Shelah. And so, she was very decisive. Removed, covered, wrapped, set. Notice her whole plan, what was it contingent on? Her plan was contingent on the fact that Judah would randomly sleep with a prostitute he meet on the street. Correct? How does she know it will, he, uh, it will succeed, the plan will succeed? Well, that's because that is who Judah is. And so he succeeded. She sat by the road, Judah came by, he thought she was a harlot for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come in to me? He said, therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, moreover, will, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, what pledge shall I give to you? She said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she was conceived by him. Now, what is this seal, cord and staff? They were important personal belongings. Okay, when they have agreement with others or they go into a contract, they'll use the seal and chop, confirm. You know, I made this, this agreement. It's like, it's like today your, your iPhone, you know. Imagine you go for lunch and you realize you don't have, didn't bring your wallet. Would you tell the uncle, say, uncle, can you hold on to my iPhone first? I eat ready, later I take money, then I can pay and take my phone back. Will you do that? Of course not, right? But that's exactly what Judah did. He didn't have money. He just wanted to have sex. And so he said, okay, take my iPhone. Okay, then later he thought, I'm, anyway, I'm going to get it back, right? 
So it gives us a glimpse of who Judah, his character, who he was. After that, she arose and departed, removed her veil, put on her widow's garments. Judah sent a young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman and to take back his, 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 his things. He did not find her. He asked the man of a place saying, where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Anaim? But they said, there has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the man of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them, otherwise we will become a laughing stock. After all, I sent this young goat, but I did not find her. What was Judah saying? He says, never mind, don't kick out such a big fuss, you know, no lao kui, no face. Can you imagine if his friends, the neighbours hear about it, say, what? You gave your iPhone to a prostitute? He says, no, it's okay, just let her have it. But friends, this gives us an insight to the man, Judah, who pursued the pleasures and desires of his flesh more than he was concerned about his own reputation, his family's reputation, God's reputation. Three months later, he heard that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, was pregnant. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her burn. You see the double standards. You know, randomly, he can have sex with a random prostitute, but when his daughter-in-law got pregnant, he said, he only said two words, okay? Bring, burn. He didn't have compassion. He didn't care why she, she was like that. Maybe it was his fault. He just said, bring, burn. It reveals his brutality. He just wanted to get rid of her and this was his opportunity. It was while she was being brought out that she said to her father-in-law saying, I'm with child by the man to whom these things belong. She says, please examine these and see whose signet ring and cords and stuff are these. She says, Hakana Lomi. Hakana, please recognize Lomi, who these things the, the word order is switched such that the emphasis is on the person. Who? Not what, not the things, but who it belongs. She was telling Judah, recognize who you are, what you are doing. And thankfully, he did. Judah recognized them and he said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give to her, to my son Sheila, and he did not have relations with her again. Judah declared Tamar to be righteous. This is what it means to be justified. Justified, declared righteous, means someone of authority and position and power declares us righteous. Not that we are righteous, but it's declared righteous. Did, did Judah say that, you know, Tamar uh, didn't do wrong? Uh, her, her deceitful, her deception, her incestuous relationship is correct? Did he say that? No. He simply said that she is more righteous than I. And don't you find it interesting? The way he saw his injustice, how unjust he treated Tamar, that, that, that action was more heinous than Tamar's sexual sin. You know, today sometimes we think about sin. What is the worst sin you can commit? We will say, yalah, must be sexual sin, right? <gasps> you have premarital sex. Or what? You have adultery? Or terrible, go to hell. You know, but when it comes to injustice, being unfair to people, social justice, how we treat the migrant workers or people who are uh, our subordinates, 
we say, oh, yeah, that's a small matter. But you look at Scripture. Judah said his, his injustice was worse than what Tamar did. He declared her righteous. And so what's the point of the whole story? I said already, you look at the summary statement, concluding statement, or a, a statement made by the character, right? And right here, Judah made a statement. He said, ah, she is more righteous than I. He declared Tamar righteous. And the whole story is about the redemption of Tamar being declared righteous. So, let me ask you, what does it mean to be righteous? I mean, we have been Christians for a long time, right? Righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? Simply, it means good performance. It's a performance report. To a student, it's your report book. At the end of the year, you show your report book why I should go to the next class. To us workers, it's our resume. Why I deserved a promotion or why I deserve to be hired. We prove our worthiness. But Scripture tells us we are declared righteous. We don't earn our righteousness. Galatians 2, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, since the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Scripture tells us that it's by faith we are justified. When Jesus died on the cross, He died the death we deserve so that we can have the life, His life, that we don't deserve. When we stand before God, God is not going to say how many good deeds you did, how many bad deeds you did. He just asks you a simple question. Are you perfect? Because God is perfect. He cannot accept anything less than perfection. And the answer every one of us will give is, I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. I deserve punishment. But because of the death of Christ, Jesus replaced us. He gives us the perfect report book. He gives us the perfect resume that we accepted. So friends, we don't earn our salvation. We don't earn our way to heaven by good deeds. We are justified by faith. But you know what? Sometimes in life, we still continue to try to justify ourselves, to justify our, ex our existence, to be validated, to be loved, to be accepted. How? Well, maybe by our children, our families, our careers, our money, to, to prove that I've earned my place in society. I have deserved to be loved by others. But you know what happens when we do that? All these things that we use to justify our existence, to validate ourselves and our worth, becomes idols. Our children, we'll squeeze them, we'll control them, so much so that they have no space to grow. And when they disappoint us, we'll be devastated. Our careers, we'll continue to grab on to them to, to prove our worth and we'll work hard. But you know what? It's never enough. We'll always ask ourselves, is, am I good enough? Have I done enough? And the answer will always be no. But Scripture tells us we are justified by faith. We are loved by God because of Jesus. You don't need to earn your way, your place in society, to earn love and acceptance by others because you are already loved by Christ. That is what it means to be justified. When we think of, but at the same time, we try to justify ourselves like in the pastor's voice, I shared with you the story, the chariots of fire, the true story about two runners, right? Eric Little that we know and this, the 100 meters guy, Herod Abrahams. He says, when the gun goes off, I only have 10 seconds to justify my whole existence. 10. Whereas Eric Little said, 
When I run, I experience the pleasure of God. And so we ask ourselves, you know, when you work, you study, you, how you look at your family and love, are you constantly striving, feeling that it's not enough? You only have this to justify my existence. I only have work to justify my existence. Or do you say, in all these things that I do, I experience the pleasure of God. So we, we are not so easily disappointed. So we can forgive people. So we can forgive ourselves. No, friends, we cannot redeem our past. Sorry, we cannot change our past, but our past can be redeemed. And this whole story of Tamar and Judah is about the redemption of Tamar. Pharaoh was 19 when she was pregnant. She didn't have anywhere to go, so she walked into a church. The pastor was Jim Simbala, and Simbala said when he heard her story, he was in tears. He said, I was so angry with the men in her life. Why did they commit such evil acts? And then he told her, the most important thing to do now is to trust God, to build a relationship with Him through Christ. He will deliver you. I don't know how, but I know He will. And so Pharaoh accepted Christ. Then he thought, where is she going to live? Suddenly he recalled, not too long ago, a young man called George and his wife shared with him their plans to start a woman's shelter. So he called George. George says, Jim, I don't know what to say. And Sibala said, if you don't know what to say, you want to say no, just don't say anything. And he says, well, just send her over. We don't have any resources, but I believe God will provide. So Pharaoh went over. A year later, Simbala went to the church pastored by George. And he saw Pharaoh standing in the front row worshipping God. At the end of the worship, she placed an infant child in his embrace and asked him to dedicate the child to God. And he said this, As Pharaoh stood with the arms held high to worship God, thanking the one who has done so much for her, I wept aloud and unashamedly. Because of what the Lord has done in her life, Pharaoh knows there's no limit to God's power. She understands that he is always ready to help those who call out to him in believing prayer. Through God's... Go back. Through God's forgiveness, Pharaoh learned to forgive herself and others. Despite a past filled with the worst kind of abuse, she is not bitter, but tender and loving. Like someone raised from the dead, she has been given a future full of hope. We cannot change what happened in our past, but we can redeem it. Just like Joseph's brother, when Jacob, the father, died, they came to him and said, please forgive us. Now that our father is not around, don't kill us. And no, remember what Joseph said. He says, what you did was evil. You meant me harm. But God meant it for good. He didn't change his past. He cannot. But he saw it in different light. He saw God's hands leading them. Friends, are we living in bondage of our past? We're unable to forgive, unable to move on, but we have been justified by faith, declared righteous. We can redeem our past through the gospel and live the fullness of life, the freedom to experience the pleasure of God rather than striving and trying to prove our worth, trying to get people to accept us, trying to earn our way to a place in society. We have been declared righteous. The story of Judah and Tamar is about the redemption of Tamar. 
More so is about the redemption of Judah. Why is this story here? Abraham's God's covenant with Abraham, the promises, land seed blessing, is to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and it's Judah and Joseph, okay, split into half. Why is this story here? Out of the blue, if you read Genesis, right, the whole last, don't know, 11 or 13 chapters about Joseph, suddenly one chapter is about Judah and Tamar. Well, later on, Israel became a country. They were divided into two. Northern is, has 10 tribes, it's called Israel or Ephraim because Ephraim is the biggest tribe. Who is Ephraim? The son of Joseph. The northern, southern tribe, southern country, two, two tribes is called Judah because the biggest tribe is Judah. And so, when the Israelites read this story, it was to help them understand their history. Why? Now their, their country is called Ephraim and Judah. When the 12 tribes divided, they entered the promised land and divided the land. 12 tribes, right? Firstly, the Levites had no land. Those who served in full time, no land. Because God says, I am your inheritance. So left 11 tribes. There's no tribe of Joseph, right? Left 10 tribes. So where the two tribes come from? Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so the double portion blessing actually went to Joseph. But the promise of the seed through whom all nations will be blessed ended up with Judah. Now, why Judah? See, the first son, Reuben, Reuben, was supposed to inherit everything, right? But he fell in love with his Jacob's little con young concubine. They didn't consummate the, the relationship. But nonetheless, Reuben fell in love with her and wanted to marry her, and so he disqualified himself. The second and third son, Simeon and Levi, they were violent, brutal men. When Jacob's family first moved back to the promised land, his daughter Dina, Dinah was raped by Shechem. Okay, but Shechem wanted to marry her. So Simeon and Levi came up to him and said, okay, you can marry our sister, but all the males in your household must be circumcised. And that fool, he agreed. All of them got circumcised and when they're still writhing in pain, Simeon and Levi came and he slaughtered them all. And you know how Jacob responded? He was angry with his sons. Because at the time, his family was small. If he enraged the local people, they would gang up together and maybe they will wipe them out. Notice Jacob. When his daughter was raped, he did not respond. At least not recorded in Scripture. But when his life was threatened, he got mad. And so friends, when we teach Scripture, let us not say, wow, let us be like Jacob. Let us be like Abraham. Let us be like David. No, there is only one hero in the Bible and that is... Jesus Christ. Don't be like Jacob. The story is about the redemption of Judah. At this point, we look at Judah, we say, what in the world? I mean, he's brutal. He's, he is, um, all he desired was his own sexual needs. He has disregarded for the things of God, even his own reputation. Why does he deserve the blessing? Because Judah grew. He changed. Remember when they sold Joseph to Egypt? They deceived their father Jacob. They took Joseph's tunic, slaughtered a male goat, a kid, dipped the tunic in blood. They sent a very coloured tunic and brought it to their father Jacob and said, we found this. Please examine Hakanah to see whether it's your son's tunic or not. It's the same word used by Tamar when she asked Judah, 
Hakana, look at this. Recognize. And so in the Middle Ages, there was a Jewish commentary of Genesis 38 that said this, The Holy One, praise He, said to Judah, You deceived your father with a kid. Tamar will deceive you with a kid. You said to your father, Hakana, by your life, Tamar will say to you, Hakana. Right here was the turning point of Judah's life. He, he saw, he recognized who he was and he turned around. That is why later, when there was a famine in the land, the brothers went to Egypt to buy grain. Who was the person in charge? Joseph, their brother. They didn't recognize him, but he recognized them, so he laid a trap. Eventually, he arrested his younger, their youngest brother, Benjamin, his own flesh and blood, that his mother, Rachel, has given birth to two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, right? So Benjamin was his own brother. He says, the rest of you can go back but Benjamin will stay here as my prisoner. And you know who went up to Joseph to plead for his life? Judah. Judah approached Joseph and said, Oh my Lord, may your servant please speak a word, word in my Lord's ears. Do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord. Let the lad, Benjamin, go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? For fear that I'll see the evil that will overtake my father. Judah had promised his father, Jacob, that he will bring Benjamin back. So he's telling Joseph, if now I go back alone without my brother, my father will die of grief. He said, take me. Take me instead. Here was a man who once because of his own interests, was willing to sacrifice the life of his brother, Joseph. But now, for the life of his brother, Benjamin, he was willing to sacrifice his own life. The story of Judah and Tamar is about the redemption of Tamar. More so, it's about the redemption of Judah. Jacob Koshi, when he was incarcerated, he would smuggle those tobacco leaves into his cell. Then he would take the pages from the Gideon Bible, wrap up into a cigarette and smoke. Once he lit a cigarette and fell asleep, when he woke up, the whole cigarette was burnt and there was just a charred piece of paper left. He read it and it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Out of curiosity, he got a new Bible and read it. It's about the salvation of Apostle Paul who once killed Christians, persecuted them. But Jesus appeared to him. Saul got converted and he, began, he became an apostle greatly used by God and wrote 13 of the New Testament books. Now, firstly, Saul and Paul is the same name. He, some people say before conversion, he's called Saul after he became Paul. That's not it, okay? Saul was his Jewish name. Paul was his Greek name. So he didn't change name. But when Jacob Koshi read this story, he said he realized that if God could help someone like Saul, God could help him too. He, he accepted Christ. Later, when he was released, he became a pastor and God used him greatly. Now, of course, I skip over his whole story. It's not so simplistic. But my point is, even somebody like Jacob Koshi, who used to run a gambling den, a smuggling ring, who, who is a criminal and has hurt so many people, he still can have hope because of the gospel. Friends, we cannot change our past 
but it can be redeemed. No matter what you've done in your past, what has happened, we are able to move on, have hope, and have abundant life because of what Christ has done. He, through His death, declared us righteous. You have the perfect resume, you have the perfect report book because of Jesus Christ. What is holding you back? The story of Tamar and Judah is not just about the redemption of Tamar. It's not just about the redemption of Judah. It's a redemption of all mankind. Came about at a time she was giving birth. Tamar was giving birth. Behold, there were twins in a womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out his hand. The midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it came about that he withdrew his hand back and behold, his brother came out. I don't know how that happened, okay? She said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So she named him Perez. That's the end of the story. And wonder what a strange story this is. And then the Gospel of Matthew, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Gospel of Matthew written to Jewish people and so Abraham and David are significant characters. So they link David's genealogy back to them. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez. Suddenly, that one singular chapter in the book of Genesis takes on a greater significance. It's not just about Tamar having hope. It's not just about Judah being redeemed. It's really about the redemption of all mankind. We look at genealogies, it's always the fathers. But in Matthew, we find five women's names, including Mary's. There's Rahab the prostitute, Ruth the Moabitess, who is despised by Israel. Tamar's name is there. And then we have Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Of course, when you write the way it's written, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, is a veiled reference to King David, what David did. David had an affair with her, killed his loyals. General Uriah. So we look at the genealogy. You know, if it was up to me to create a religion, I wouldn't include those names, you know. Would you? You really, wow, so many sway people in there. <laughs> why? You know why? Because we are all sway people, you know. We are condemned. We are just like them, despised, on the fringes, outcast. But we are brought into the house of God. We are brought to become the apple of God's eye, to the center of God's story, because of the cross, because of what happened here, because of the Messiah Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. Beckett Cook, in the September of 2009, he said he was in a neighborhood coffee shop, saw a bunch of people doing Bible study. And so he approached them and talked to them. They shared the gospel with him, invited him to church, and he asked them this question What do you think about homosexuality? And they said, It's a sin. Cook said, a few years ago, I would have just turned around and walked away. But because of what I experienced five years ago in Paris, I've been searching for the purpose of life, struggling with this meaninglessness. And I thought, perhaps they are right. So he went to church with them that Sunday. He heard the gospel for the first time. He says, I grew up in Catholic schools, and to me, religion has always been about my performance. But when I heard the gospel, it resonated in my heart. I cannot justify myself. I cannot find meaning and purpose through all my achievements, all the partying, living out my sexual identity. 
It's only through Christ. So during the altar call, he went to the front, accepted Christ. He said, for the next three months, my schedule suddenly became empty. No, usually he's overbooked. But the next three months, suddenly he has no work. So he said, I read the Bible every day, prayed every day. Every time I opened the Bible, I teared up. I realized God is real. You can actually know Him. You can actually find meaning in life. He later went to seminary and then he wrote a book about change affections, about the issue of homosexuality. He said, when we are regenerated, our affections change, not just in the area of sexuality, but in everything else. Our attitude towards money, success, relationships. In terms of the so-called conversion therapy, I don't think it's something we should force. I still struggle with same-sex attraction, even though it has greatly diminished and no longer dominates my thought life like it did before God saved me. But He can do anything. He can create the universe. He can reorient our attractions. He wrote about how he was molested as a young person. He prayed for God to remove his feelings, but nothing changed. He said, for now, I'm happy just to be single and celibate for the rest of my life. I'm happy to deny myself, take up the cross, and follow Jesus. Friends, is that not what the gospel is about? When we understand the love of God, we take up our cross and deny ourselves, not just in our sexual orientations, in our desires, in every part of our lives. And that is when we experience freedom. We experience the pleasure of God. And so when we look at creation, we see that Christ is the creator who fills emptiness with his life, who causes us to become a new creation. The story of Adam and Eve shows us that Jesus is the seed of the woman who will save us. He will cover our sin and shame. The story of Cain and Abel tells us to offer sacrifice, you need faith. Jesus is the one with the perfect faith. In fact, his blood gives us forgiveness. In the story of Noah, it tells us that salvation is exclusive. And Jesus says, I'm the truth, the way, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. The story of Abraham shows us Jesus is the seed of Abraham through whom all nations will be blessed. The story of Isaac, sacrifice of Isaac, that Jesus is true Isaac, the perfect sacrifice who died in our place. The story of Jacob shows that Jesus is the one that reconciles us to God and allows reconciliation with others. And today, in our story of Judah and Tamar, Jesus is the one who declared us righteous. Friends, this is the greatest love story ever told. And our stories have been written into that. What do we do in response is to tell others this story, to write their lives into this love story of God. You know, recently in Ashbury Seminary, there has been a revival, an outpouring of the Spirit. It was a 30-minute chapel in school and it lasted for two weeks. People didn't want to leave. They were just worshipping and praying. And people from all over the country drove to Ashbury to be part of the worship until the seminary president had to shut the worship down because there were just too many people coming to town. And we say that we desire revival. We've been praying for revival. Someone sent a text to me. He says, for revival to happen, we must desire, we must pray. We must become a house of prayer. And he asked, is QBC a house of prayer? Because you know that's part of our vision. We cannot manufacture revival. 
All we can do is to build the altar. Like Elijah, it's God who sends the fire down. We have to build the altar of prayer in our homes, in our lives, in our church. This is the Lent season. How do we prepare ourselves for Lent? Beyond our families, our work, our careers, do you believe there is another dimension? There is God who loves us, who died for us, who is coming again, and we prepare our hearts, our lives to meet Him. Next week is our prayer meeting. Do we desire to pray? And we believe that God answers prayer. We believe that God will pour out His Spirit onto us. Do we desire to come together to pray? To build the altar of prayer in your own life, in your family's life, in our church life. Friends, we cannot change our past, but we can redeem our past through the gospel. This is the greatest love story ever told. Let us pray. Even as the worship team leads us, I want us to respond to God in prayer. Perhaps there's someone in our midst that you haven't trusted Christ. You've been trying to justify your existence, to find meaning and purpose, to be loved and accepted. The only way is through Jesus. And if you believe you are a sinner and you want to know Christ, you want Him to fill your life, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. In your seats, with heads bowed, eyes closed, you raise your hand and say, God, this is what I want. Is there anyone in our midst? Perhaps you've been coming to put it down after you raise. Is there somebody in our midst that you want to take this opportunity to respond to the gospel and say, God, I want to accept you. Accept you into my life. Is there anybody like that? Just raise your hands and then put it down. Maybe it's your first time listening to the gospel or you've been church for a while but you haven't made the decision. You haven't responded to the gospel. This is your opportunity to experience life that is truly life. To surrender your dreams to God and allow Him to give you freedom and experience His pleasure. Is there somebody like that? I want to give you an opportunity of a lifetime to respond. After put up, please put it down. For the rest of us, we say we want to respond to God, to commit to a life of prayer, to truly believe in revival, to pray for revival. You respond and commit to God so that you can be freed from your past. Say yes to God. 